So welcome to No Nonsense with Pamela Wallen. Now, a funny thing happened on the way to this podcast because I said to my producer, Paul Boone, I said, I want you to go and book Gary Marr. He's going to be a really interesting guy. We want to talk about China and this and that. Gary Marr is a former Alberta politician, and he now runs the Canada West Foundation and So up comes this note from Paul saying, yes, here's some really interesting information on housing from Gary Marr. Paul, Paul, (laughs) are you there? Could you explain yourself, please? Okay, it was, uh, I think it was December 19th, or it was it was the week of Christmas or something like that. Is this and your yeah, excuse? This is, is this my excuse. Your- yeah, this is my official narrative. Um, and you said, yeah, okay, I want Gary Marr. Uh, come on, let's get Gary Marr. And so I type in Gary Marr in Google. And the first thing that shows up is journalists, Financial Times, the house mar- housing market. And I was like, okay, yeah, Senator Wallen, journalist. Yeah, you know, the housing market. Sure, this is the right guy. <laughs> I was wrong. I was dead wrong. Uh, I think I uh, had one too few R's. So then there was a conversation with the other Gary Marr, who said, I'm the real deal. Journalism career spanning four decades, 19 years at Post Media. Now I work for a large real estate data company that takes a look at all these housing trends. And so he and I agreed that we should probably do a podcast with him, too. And he's here. Gary, welcome. Thanks for having me, Senator Wallen. <laughs> this is, I mean, talk about serendipity, right? We we have this encounter and then now housing is like a huge story. Uh, that's all anybody can talk about. It seems these days is whether they're in, they're counting their, what their house is worth or they're shut out and they're trying to make their way in. It's dominates all our conversations. Well, I want to talk about those trends. So one of the headlines that grabbed me the other day is Canadian real estate is in a melt up as opposed to a meltdown. Like it's just, as you say, on every score, it's kind of moving. One of the things that really um, has interested me in the stats, and I'm, I'm sure you're seeing this, is that people Paul's age, like millennials or, you know, aging millennials. Can we call you that, Paul? I'm not I'm not sure. Yeah, he's saying we can um, are getting into the housing market. This was a generation that didn't ever think they would. And now they're getting in. And in part, when we see the numbers from StatsCan and other people, there's those government programs that were there in the billions of dollars. People have saved that money and used that money to break into a market they couldn't have before. Yeah, I think there's a there's a lot of fear of missing out now in the market, and it's it's hard. I mean, you can feel it. I mean, if you if you didn't buy a year ago, you look at the latest stats across the country, prices are up seventeen percent. So you feel like I missed out on that, and at the same time, you're exactly right. The government has created programs like the you know they've increased the amount you can take out of your RRSP to buy your first home. That's a big bonus, you know, whether you could debate whether it's good policy, but at the end of the day, if you have a couple coming together, now they can take $70,000 out of their RSP and throw it towards a first purchase. And that's going to help them get to that down payment. Whereas without that, I mean, before it was 25. So that, that gives people a boost on that all important down payment to get into the market. When governments were worried about the booms in Vancouver and Toronto specifically, of course, they made the buy-in price 
higher, right? You had to have a larger down payment. So have they done anything about that or they've just allowed you to access access funds for that down payment in a different way? Well, I guess you could define how they've done anything. One thing that definitely happens is lower interest rates. I mean, that is probably the biggest thing funding the market right now. If you look at, I was just looking these up today and the five-year, you can go get five-year money, I think for 1.5% or so. So that's pretty well no no uh, interest really. And yeah. how much you're going to knock down your principal, who knows, but it's an, it's, it's, pretty, it's, it's the number one incentive, I think, driving the market right now is those interest rates. So the Bank of Canada says it's going to keep the rates low at least till 2023. They've kind of they don't promise, but they suggest. Um, and and so, you, as you say, you've got lots of people getting in with a, a five year guarantee there. But there's also that fear then of when those rates go up. Are these younger people getting in that are using government funds or taking it out of their R- RSPs? Are they potentially in some trouble then um, if they're into the housing market and the interest rates go up? I, I think that's probably a legitimate fear. I mean, one thing you could do, Canadians don't do it, but you could lock in for 10 years. It's almost unheard of because they're right on the 10 years. 2.14% I was looking at today. And for that, that 50 basis points, that could be a big difference in your payments per month. So everybody's looking at the cheapest rate they, they can get in. But yeah, it's a real fear. I mean, we saw what happened when the government gave people a chance for deferrals. They immediately decided, I'm going to defer my mortgage for a brief period. We haven't seen a lot of defaults. That, that would be the argument against it. Despite right. everything that we say, all this debt and everything, the reality is Canadians seem to pay their mortgages. We don't we don't have a you know jingle mail except maybe in Alberta where you can hand over your mortgage. I mean, some people might think that, but you don't get to walk away from your house. You know, that'll chase you forever if you yeah. if you're underwater. So I uh, I I think it's a I think it's overheated, but but I mean at the same time, how do you argue against somebody wanting to get into the housing market right now? Exactly. I mean, it's always been the best place to save your money and make your money, right? I mean, it's it's doesn't almost matter where you live. Maybe in some real rural sectors where towns are dying and the real estate values aren't going up, but anything that's even semi-urban seems to be a good investment. Well, that's what's really interesting, I find, about this pandemic boom right now is... Yes. Uh, we're, we're seeing people moving to the so-called exurbs and I was looking at some prices and it's really shocking from a year ago, you're getting places where like London and Ontario and Kingston and, and Halifax, like people are moving their lives to Halifax and prices are up. You know, they're, I think they're up 30, they're up 36.9% year over year in Halifax. So people are packing up and moving to Halifax. They've decided they don't want to live in downtown Toronto. So they're going to Guelph and it's 26% more to buy a house in Guelph right now. A Guelph home, if you can wrap your mind around it, the average price of a Guelph home is $734,000. Wow. The average. Like that's amazing. I can't. I can't wrap my head around that, and I don't and, know. And I was there a couple of weeks ago, and you can see the boom is underway, like the building boom. There's a crane everywhere. Yeah, and that to me, that's the, to me the question is, and prices aren't. They're actually not going up as fast in Toronto and Vancouver 
as they are in the suburbs and the so-called exurbs. And that to me is what will happen when this is all over. Are those people going to regret moving to these cheaper locales? Are they going to be able to work from home? Because a lot of this is that is that. Yeah, no, that's the really basic thing. Now, you work for uh, a company that, you know, represents major real estate people. So you're knowing the trends here and you have to know the trends. So this work from home thing, of course, has changed the world as we know it uh, in terms of expenditures and how we relate to work and all that, you know, you're you're working in your home or living in your office, however you wanted to describe it. But so do you think or what portion of that is going to remain post the pandemic? What's your what do your numbers tell you as you look forward or just the speculation? Are people going to insist on continuing to work from home? And if so, about what percentage? That, you know, that's the million dollar question right now that everybody's asking. And I think what we see on the ground for sure from our data is massive amounts of people moving out of the downtown. Vacancy rates through the roof. You know, they've had that problem in Calgary for a while, but it's now in Toronto. And, you know, the the so-called shadow vacancy rate, which would be people who are paying their leases in offices, but the offices are empty. Mm-hmm. You, know, that, you know, that's massive. That's even higher. But I think where is it going in the future? A lot of that, as you know, will depend on government policy incentives. There's a lot of wild cards, I think, that that people were betting on this are probably making maybe if you're betting, if you're all in on it and you think this pandemic is going to last forever. I question that logic. I mean, if you you're I'm in Toronto and when I walk through downtown Toronto or I bike through that area, it seems like a fairly unhospitable place right now, right? It's tall buildings. There's no bars open. There's no restaurants. There's no baseball. There's no opera. There's no everything. But, you know, a year from now or six months from now, when all that's back, are people going to want to be back down there? I would say all the things that made Toronto, Vancouver, Calgary cities exciting. Uh, I'm not sure I buy it, but I do agree with you that, and everybody seems to indicate this, a hybrid formula is coming, like where people want to work part of it. And the question will be, how do the employer, how does the employer and how do the employee agree on a middle ground? I think that's, to me, that's the big question. So what, what do you do if you're um, in the real estate business? What, what are you planning for? Or you, do you just have to wait this out till we see um, if and when the pandemic, pandemic ends and, and then we start to watch what, how people behave and whether or not they can negotiate that at-home work or remote work? so that they can live in smaller, more affordable places. Although, as you suggested, the smaller places are, are going up in price. Relative, I guess. Yeah. I guess you could look at like what, what we're seeing is some shorter leases. People aren't, okay. you know, landlords aren't committing. I mean, tenants aren't committing to a 20-year or 10-year lease right now. They might. There's a lot of sublease space on the market, so you can commit to that. You know, one of the things I find interesting about the work-from-home work from home philosophy is how we measure productivity. Because for me, you know, every survey that I see says the worker has decided he's more, he or she's more productive at home, right? Everybody says that. But the employees, the employers and the executives, they're not that clear on this. And I think 
When I think about this, I've been thinking about it a lot. I think the disconnect is what is your work day? Now, you know, for me, what is my work day if I if I'm in the office? That includes getting into the office. It's an hour and a half. You know, right. people have to get ready. Luckily, if you saw me, I don't have any hair, so I don't have to prepare that. that. <laughs> you know, I don't take a lot of time to prepare myself, but a lot of people do. So is your 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 total work day, I think, is what is it, 10 hours? Let's say it's typical eight hours at work, and your work day in the office is eight. Your employer doesn't really care about your hour commute. And that's where a lot of this is commute, right? The commute in Toronto is what is an hour each way for the average person. That's two hours a day. Is where does that factor into productivity? To me, that is at the core of the issue of productivity. And if employers decide that they have a business where the employer employee is happier, they might say, go ahead, work from home. I don't care if you're a little bit less productive because I no longer have my office costs. And after employees, office is the number is usually the number one cost, right? Your physical yeah. mental space. What is going to happen? I mean, as you say, when you drive through the canyon in Toronto, Bay Street, I mean, there's a lot of beautiful tower buildings and the the commercial space on the main floor or the stores or restaurants might come back. But will they come back if there's nobody in the other 75 floors or 101 floors? Uh, That's a big question. You know, I was listening to a conference in Ottawa about six months ago. And it was uh, it was talking about Ottawa real estate. You know, yeah. nowhere is this. You know, the, in Ottawa, twenty five percent of the space is the government, right? Yeah. So, but the government of this uh, head of procurement said we're very well well aware that if we leave the downtown and let every federal public service employee work from home, you know, Ottawa's not going to have a downtown. It's right. going to it's going to wither on the vine. You know, and they built this great transit system. So I think I think employers are in a battle with this together. I think I think there's a lot of big factors on on why downtowns can't can't die. One uh, one that nobody really talks about is who owns all these tall buildings? Our pension funds. You know, the you know, the big, big pension funds in this country, yeah. all of them have about 10 to 15, 20% even of their uh, allocation in real estate. Like we don't want to see, you know, Oxford properties or the you know any of these any of these big players, Cadillac, Fairview, they represent teachers, municipal employees. We don't want to see their investments down, you know, lose a fortune, do we? I mean, we have an incentive exactly. to have that those buildings fall. That's a little bit of self-interest that I hadn't actually considered that we want our, our pensions to be there. And that means well, these investments have Yorktown to be. Lempy, who owns Yorkdale? Two pension yeah. funds. You know, one of the, yeah. probably the most valuable mall in the country. And everybody says, well, whatever. But, you know, if I'm an employee of a municipal employee, I might want to get my pension check. Yeah. Uh, certainly a percentage of that comes from Yorkdale. Let me come back just to something you mentioned there about downtowns, because this is a trend that's been going on way pre the pandemic, which is I remember the one of the first times I lived in Ottawa, of course, I've been there five, six times, but uh, to work in different incarnations. But that downtown used to be vibrant. Now people have moved to the suburbs for bigger homes. Uh, they There's all the big box malls and everything around in places like Ottawa. Of course, that happens in almost every other community. Are, are, can they can downtown survive the pandemic at all? Because they were borderline at the beginning. 
I think, you know, a lot of this will be pricing, right? Like what we're seeing in downtown Toronto is, and, and this is true in Ottawa to an extent, is rental rates have dropped 20%. Like before the pandemic, it was the prices to rent an apartment in downtown Toronto. They were astronomical. We were, you know, in the luxury end, you know, those new gleamy, beautiful condos, you know, you were getting a 500 square foot a condo and it was renting for 2000 a month. Yeah, it was crazy. And that price is off 20%. So at some point, the Delta changes and suddenly maybe that downtown becomes a little more attractive if prices drop by 30%. You know, a lot of people are also, you know, there's a lot of, that's a young population, young demographic. Mm -hmm. I'm sure if there was no reason to be downtown, you got to live at home, you went back at home to live with your parents. And we've seen the numbers skyrocket of people under 30 living with their parents. I don't know. I live with my parents. How long can you do that for before you want to get out? <laughs> that, that would be my question. I think there is yeah. a point where people do want to move up. And if the rental rates drop, I think that will be, there'll be some shift back into cities. The the other question about renting, and we've seen a lot of people, and I think this is not just in the Toronto area. I think it's everywhere that people have gone, as you say, further out, either to smaller towns or maybe to, um, a lakefront or a country home or something that they had their second home. And they've now, I just got an email for some, from some friends yesterday, they're selling their condo downtown. They're going to move full time to the country and then maybe rent a little small place in Toronto. So if they want to come in and go to a restaurant and overnight, they can. So then that's going to put pressure back on the rental market again. Definitely. I think what what we're in in a rental market is not a permanent situation. I think we've got a we've got an affordable, you know, affordability, affordability problem in cities. You know, it's eased off now. All you got to do is I think the headline said we were at what was the recent low for immigration? We're at a, it's like a record low in the last few decades. So all those people are coming in. Take the students, foreign students who haven't coming in. A lot of students who would have been renting are living at home with their folks, you know, and that includes people who might be going to university towns. They're back home. I, you know, I have no, I have friends with children who are, who are at schools, schools in some of these towns and they're back at home doing their degrees online. I, that's not going to last. So that you're right. That pressure is coming back and it's going to come back really strong. I think. This other thing that keeps uh, popping up, I hear people say all the time, which is, you probably shouldn't even own a home after 65 or after 70, like sell your home, maximize your, your value out of that, take it and live your life and pay rent because you, you're not trying to accumulate that wealth. You're, you're trying to spend it when you get into your retirement age. I mean, it's not a bad philosophy. I, I can understand why people would do that, especially if you have a finite amount of wealth. But one of the things that drives home ownership in this country, and, you know, it's close to 70 percent, seven out of 10 of us own our homes. That's amazing, isn't it? It really is. It makes you it makes you wonder, like when people talk about how the possibility of a, of, of taxing a principal residence to gains. Uh, I would say anybody who touches that, that touches that is playing with a ball of fire, I think. But <laughs> <laughs> that's just my view. That but might I, be the I, one issue people vote on. <laughs> yeah, I, I think so. But, you know, it is interesting that I think 
The, the thing about the principal residence is you have more choice in Canada where you live. If you're, let's say you want to live in a big house, a relatively big house, and you want to rent, you're downsizing. Maybe I want to downsize a decade from now. My choices are very limited in what I can, the product that's out there. There isn't, you know, you can go to a high rise um, tower and get a two bedroom apartment on a per square foot basis. That's going to be a more expensive proposition almost always. You do have the luxury of a doormat, security, weight room, all these things. But the house is, uh, you have more choice, better value, more control. Most people don't want to leave. And all the stats show, you know, we were supposed to get this monster demographic shift when people turned 65 and 75. They were going to leave. Their houses were going to become available. Never happened. It never happened. All these people don't want to leave. And they're now living, they're now doing what you're saying. Some of them are buying second places, you know, and, yeah. and there or some of them, like one of the most startling stats I've, I've seen the last few years is the, is the number of people over 65 who take on bigger mortgages because they want bigger houses in their retirement. Over 65. Yeah. They'll, they'll take on bigger houses. They upsize. Like it seems logical that people over 60 would upsize, but it, it does happen. So what's that? That phenomenon is grandparents that want a room for the grandkids to come and stay in a pool in the backyard or. Yeah. I think some of them can afford, and it's also a wealth, a wealth issue. They've got the wealth. Some of it's inherited. We know about the massive amount of inheritance, that wall of inheritance, which is also, you know, driving the housing market to no, without question, you know, the bank of mom, mom and dad continues to drive the housing market. And uh, I think people, even when they're older, they have this money and a house is something you spend, you know, a lot of hours a weekend. So it's easy to argue the utility from being in a house. Well, and I guess also people are physically in better health. So the prospect of having to maintain the house isn't that daunting. Or if they have some wealth, they can get some help with it. It's not like they have to leave because they can't shovel the walk or or go up the set of stairs. Exactly. I mean, we know that there's been you know tons of renovation. Renovation market took off because of all of this. And I wonder what the lingering effects of the pandemic are going to be on people wanting to sell their house. We know the place to be during a pandemic was in a house. Yeah, you know, with, the yard. Yeah, with <laughs> the yard, a backyard and everything. A place to, you know, kick back. It, it, you know, it was a major privilege to have that. You were lucky to have that compared to somebody who's in a high rise during the last year. I mean, I, I have a backyard and I'm very thankful for it. And you wonder, like, during this, I thought, I've always thought I would downsize. But now, you know, people I know in condos, they can't act. They weren't able to exercise in their in their room, in those rooms. They have all the luxuries that are part of a condo, which make it such a livable, wonderful thing. They haven't been available for a year. And I kind of wonder what type of scar that will leave on the mindset of people like over the next five to 10 years. Yeah, I think it it does. And, you know, just our our most recent uh, podcast, um, we were taking a look at at, with Andre Picard at what's going on in 
long-term care facilities and old folks homes. And I think people have had a look in that window in the last year and what they saw scared the hell out of them. Um, and, and that they do need to be fixed and upgraded and all of those things. But I also think it has that impact of people saying, I'm not going anywhere near that. I'm going to stay in my home as long as I possibly can. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. I mean, you wonder like so much of our savings is, geared around not being in that retirement home. They've always had sort of a, a, a bit of a negative viewpoint and you wanted to stay in your house as long as possible. That's got to be entrenched more than it's ever been. So, and especially as you said before, you know, the ability to retrofit your house in a way mm-hmm. to uh, fit it. And the new houses are being built, like especially in the luxury end, you see some of these new infill townhouses in Toronto and sure it is a wealthier part of the market, but they'll have elevators. They put elevators in, you know, an elevator used to be, it is still a luxury item, but it used to be right. something for a mansion, right? Yeah. Like, you know, nobody. Now it's in a three story townhouse. Yeah, it is. Or it's roughed out. So you can put it in one day. So instead of, you know, having lift right. on your chairs, which some people might not want to do because it's not sellable when you resell it, there's a lot of minor things you can do. But if you have a small little elevator that takes you from, you know, a narrow, you know, condo that takes you from zero, you know, zero to four every day and it's really easy and you can do it with your walker. Why can't you live there till you're 90? Yeah, I think you can. The uh, you talked about and mentioned, of course, government policies and how they decide to react to this and what they tax and what they don't and and what their environmental policies are and all the rest really have a dramatic effect. So we've seen things like lumber prices just go sky high um, in the pandemic because there is so much demand and because it's been hard to get supply. So that means uh, prices are are going up. You've got. Um, environmental policies that have been difficult and also just world markets on the energy sector in Alberta and Saskatchewan, uh, for example. So what are you seeing there in terms of some trends like Alberta, downtown Calgary, the last time I was there was, was uh, pretty bleak. Well, it's interesting. I like, you know, where, where the government, the government role in this recovery, and especially if we're talking about housing, Mm-hmm. Uh, you wonder whether one of the big whether that's whether it's going to be enough push to take it on because one of the problems we've seen in this country and it's starting to catch up to us now is we don't build enough houses for for the number of people that we have in this country and that includes immigration whether you're for or against it you still have to house people and you know I always say there's income yeah yeah there's I mean there's two there's two in my mind I think. When we talk about affordable housing, it's a very loose term because to me, there's creating affordability in the market and then there's subsidized housing. And it's going to be very hard at any point in the city of Toronto to build an apartment unit at, you know, and make a profit on it that for eight that only rents out for $800 a month. That's not possible. It is never going to be possible. So the question is, you know, how much money do we want to spend? Because we want people to have a place to live in the city. And how much can we maybe reduce some of the other end of the market in the mid midterm to the higher end of part of the market? And that can be done with more supply. But I think the problem, and this has always been the disconnect in the market, is you know, you've got two, you don't have a coordinated government policy. And that's not laying the blame at any party 
or any. It's just no, the, no, and also jurisdictionally system. with the provinces. Yeah, too. the federal yeah. government controls supply, I mean, demand through through you know interest rates and immigration, and the provinces and their partners in cities they they decide where everything's going to be built. So that's a pretty tough divide, and it's very hard, I think, to get those two the levels of government to, to coordinate policy. And it's now sort of reaching a point where I think it's becoming more critical than it's ever been. Well, we're watching it on the vaccine rollout. You know, <laughs> the federal government is supposed to be buying it and pro- procuring it, and the provinces are supposed to be delivering it, and they're all yelling at each other saying, give me more, and the other way is do it faster. Right? <laughs> it's, very, it's a very hard issue. And on housing, it's, uh, you know, I get it. You live in a great neighborhood. Or I live in a great neighborhood. He lives in a great neighborhood. And they don't want more density in their neighborhood. It's right. like, no, we don't want more cars. We don't want more, more, want more of this. And, you know, there's this, uh, one of the REIT CEOs, one of the landlords, big landlords in the country always has this line that he says, you know, Canadians want more immigration. They just don't want it in their neighborhood. Right. The, the <laughs> Which that in my- kind of like <laughs> sums it all up to me. Yeah. That's exactly right. And I mean, it's the same with low income housing, right? How, as you say, who's going to build it and who wants it in their neighborhood, right? So you have to come over both those hurdles uh, to figure out how we can house people. Yeah, I I agree. I think you've got it. You know, you've got to sort of, you know, you can have a little bit of skepticism about developers, but I think, you know, you increase, you give people certain density for certain housing and Usually that create, you know, you can create low cost housing that way. I mean, there's, there's a whole debate of whether you want the government to build it itself. And, I, you know, I'm right. not going to get right. into that. But that's, a, I think that's a completely separate debate. That there are ways to encourage, you know, there are ways to encourage more housing. And, and, and you know, developers will tell you one of the reasons we've had lack of housing is, is rent control across the country. It, it's a discouraging factor to build to build rental housing. And, you know, we've, you know, it, it's, it, you can't, you can't help but feel sympathy for anybody who can't afford a rental increase right now. I mean, it, you know, there's a big part of the population suffering, but at the same time, the consequence of that could be that we might see less rental construction in the next five years because people are worried they won't be able to pass on rental increases. So what's the answer to that? Like, how, how do we deal with that over the long term? That's always going to be an issue, whether it's pre-pandemic or post or with high immigration level, immigration levels are low. It doesn't matter. That's always going to be a problem. It, rent control is there because people need it with fixed and low incomes. On the other hand, who wants to provide it if you can't make any money when that's supposed to be an investment? <laughs> you've hit it right with the nail on the head there. That's, that is the essence of it. I think what, you know, if you talk to developers, what they want, it, what they want more than anything else is cost certainty. I mean, if you talk to anybody in business, they want to be, they don't want the rules changed on them in the middle of it. And, you know, in Ontario, that's what happened. They changed the rules and they, they expanded rent control to more buildings. Then they took it off existing, you know, new buildings back in November. I think it was 2019. And and then people could price that in. But if you give, and a lot of the big buildings are now being built by those safe pension funds we talked about earlier, and they can look at things on a 50-year window of a building, which is 
which can be fairly positive because then they can establish, you know, what income flow do we need and what rental rate do we need over time? And I think, I think cost certainty is probably what, and this is a pandemic. So, you know, all cards are off the table to a degree, but I think cost certainty and the ability to, for, for um, real estate, real estate companies to figure out, you know, what can I pencil in as my prop? What can I pencil in for my profit? You know, this is what, this is the return I want be it a, you know, a 5% return, 6% return, whatever they want. And then you can figure out whether you can build that unit. And sometimes it's a question of giving them enough density to, to allow for that. So I just read um, a story uh, the other day about Walmart. So they're going to put, I think the figure is 500 million into uh, renovating stores and fixing it up. So that's also been a debate during the pandemic, which is a lot of provinces closed the small businesses and let the big boxes remain open. It was very controversial because you got lots more people going into the big boxes together in small places where maybe if two or three of us had been in smaller stores, it actually might've been safer. What, how's the industry kind of factoring that in, in terms of their plans? Well, I think one of the biggest problems with the retail sector is right now is nobody knows what the state, you know, who's going to survive and who's not going to survive. You know, if we'd have, if, you know, and I understand why we've placed a lot of rental subsidies in different ways into the market, but it, it has sort of put everything on a holding pattern for a, for a bit. We haven't seen any investment sales in retail, so people aren't really trading real estate properties because you don't know what a real estate property is worth. But yeah. I, I think, you know, as I think as we come out of this, I was just talking to somebody about this today. There's a lot of retailers and a lot of creativity happening in um that people are thinking about post pandemic because there's so much retail space now. And even with the government subsidies, I mean, I think something like 2,300 stores have, cro- have have closed down during the pandemic. And what this executive was telling me is there's, there's people poised to go in with some different models. Like there, there's a big movement and for, you know, luxury secondhand goods, apparently. Is, is some niche market that might emerge out of this. I think that's huge. We're all going through it. The kids don't want the China and you you got to get rid of this stuff and maybe somebody wants it out there, but it's not the automatic pass, pass down that it once was. And, and even the charities aren't that interested in picking up old stuff. So you've got to find some other way to dispose of this. Yeah, we're we're heading towards, and this I always feel positive about this technology. Yeah. We're heading towards a more efficient economy. Yeah, if, you know, if we get a more efficient economy, you know, I, I, where somebody has some product that is niche for some neighborhood, and they can make money, and they can open up a store, and the rental rate sort of fits it. I mean, that's to me, that's an ideal world where where uh, people can fill into some of these some of these spaces that haven't been able to make money and. I, I think we'll, I don't believe that restaurants, I think restaurants are going to come back very strong. I know the deputy chief economist of at CIBC, he's predicted lineups for restaurants by the time this is over. But what I think will be interesting is the supply of restaurants has probably gone way down during this period. And the demand is going to suddenly surge for, uh, for that product. But Can the real estate industry, is, yeah. yeah, but the real estate industry is also getting creative. Like, one of the things landlords are being more flexible on rent. Like they're willing to, instead of taking a 
just your rental rate. Like, you know, normally the retail would pay X dollars per month. Now the landlords are working on deals with their percentage of sales. Yeah. I participated in this to a degree, the upside. And, and I think what this has done is forced a lot of people in the retail sector to get more creative. Yeah, it is interesting. Like even, uh, you know, a lot of of the chains of closed outlets like Starbucks. So I guess the question is, is are other coffee shops going to move into Starbucks locations or is it going to be one of these places where you trade and sell your furniture to other people in the same income bracket, but it's just something new and different that that secondhand market that you're talking about or the more creative side? Well, that'll be interesting. I know like you know, it's just Starbucks is now focused heavily on the drive-through window, right? Yeah. Because they don't want to touch anybody or go near anybody. Yet. And this, and that's more of a slam dunk for them. But, you know, I just did a piece this week about a Calgary company that is trying to build up franchises in uh, in Toronto and make their way back to Toronto in some of these abandoned Starbucks locations. Mm-hmm. So they think they can take over some of these Starbucks locations. And maybe they can. I mean, there's... Uh, you know, there, there's opportunity there. I haven't seen a lot of new retailers. The only thing I see that's new and is cannabis. Yes. I've never seen so many cannabis. Retailers. My God, it's everywhere. It's on every street yeah. corner. You know, it's a, I haven't really done a lot of work on that, but I'm fascinated <laughs> to know if the market's there for that. It feels like there's more cannabis stores than liquor stores, but I know that's wrong. It just yeah. feels that way right now. It does make you, though, go back to the point we discussed earlier about productivity. I mean, if you don't have to <laughs> and you can work at home, <laughs> you know, this could be a dangerous trend. I mean, people might be yeah. happier. But. It's true. But there is, I mean, as we get more efficient, you know, I think we can also become way more productive. I, I think, you know, when when things get, when you don't have, you know, and some people want to shop, right. They enjoy the whole experience of shopping. therapy. Yeah. I mean, that it's true. There's a, there's an entertainment factor to retail and that's good. I think that's going to be actually big coming out of the pandemic too. Like, I think people are not just going to want to have a plate of pasta, you know, dumped in front of them. They're going to want to go somewhere for an experience that is something different than what is at home. And that'll become, you know, that'll become something that people might even be willing to pay for. Cause we know we, have, we know uh, not everybody, but uh, there's a large ch- chunk of the population with massive amounts of savings ready to be spent right now. And yeah. I think they're going to, those people will probably help retail quite a bit. That's the, when you talk about that experiential side of eating or consuming or whatever, you know, I, I was in Dubai at one point and, you know, they've got ski hills in the malls. Right? Like, it's, it's pretty extreme, but people do seem to be searching for that kind of thing. Well, we almost kind of invented that in Canada with the West Edmonton Mall. Absolutely. Well, yeah. How long has that been up for? I mean, I, yeah, you're hundred uh, percent right on that. And yeah. That was that was people used to. I, I think they still do. They used to vacation in Edmonton in the middle of absolutely the to go to a mall. Well, you must have. I'm, I love Edmonton's a great town, but you got to have something great to go to Edmonton in the middle. Well, middle if you want to watch the Oilers practice, yeah, that, that was, was the eighties, right? So yeah, you had Gretzky. So definitely, that was probably a lure too. But I think you're right. So is that going to continue? I mean, you do see restaurants with waterfalls and, you know, people are trying to 
to do something a, a little different. Is that going to be true in the in the mall itself or in the office tower itself? Or are we going to follow that other trend where we've become much more judicious about how we spend our money and we've kind of toned down our our needs and demands? Like if you watch the the spending patterns. So do we want this other stuff or do we want to be more frugal or will we be both? I mean, I think we're going to spend. That's what I think. I think there's, you know, the people who've had a rough time in the pandemic, they're not going to spend. Uh, obviously, yeah. they're unemployed. They're going to, they're, they're in a tough spot. But the people who've had, who haven't lost any income and they've had the same income. Yeah. And, and they're, they're saving. And they're saving. I, I, yeah. I think they're itching to spend. You look at, I mean, they're already doing it on their house. We know, like, you look at how much people spent on home fitness equipment during the pandemic. I mean, it, incredible amounts of money have been spent on home fitness and try to find a rowing machine right now. And like, yeah. Yeah. Yes. So I think people are willing to spend. And I think, I think it, they will demand, there will be demand for it. And I think one of the problems for the, for the retail sector is I think they will be in, they will be the regional sort of where you pick up your little goods, things that's going to survive. And then the big ticket malls, but that middle of mall, you know, which isn't really very sexy. It right. doesn't really have much to it. I mean, why, what am I doing there? If I, you know, I'm not going, I'm going there in and out. I can just get it delivered to me. Right. The same with all right. of power center. We had a lot of power centers for, you know, the power center where you drove up, picked it up, went home. Yeah. Uh, I think those, you wonder where those are going to be in the pandemic. I, I do think people will want to kick the tires on it and see something like see something in person, but yeah, I want to feel be it. Ready to get it. Yeah, they'll be ready to get it delivered. But I think that's one of the interesting things about retail in the future is I think at, at the local level, you had a lot of retailers storing goods on property. I don't know. That doesn't really make any sense in the future. I, yeah. you, you probably want to go over to Best Buy, look at the TV set, look at the phones, look at the X, and then they deliver it to you in the next 24 hours. That might yeah. make, that could make sense. I, I also think, you know, it could also be in another location. Like Walmart is building them. Walmart's building this big center in Toronto where you open up, you order all your goods online and, you know, XXXXX and you drive there and pick it up and then you leave. So they take out that last mile guy who's come to your house, woman who's come to your house and deliver the goods. You go get it themselves. And you can already do that at Loblaws too, groceries. You can just pick up. So there's definitely evolution happening there. Okay, here's my final question. Let's say you win the lottery, but the money has to be spent on real estate. So <laughs> are you going to go to Halifax, which is seems to be trendy in the new in place? Are you going to go to Calgary where there's good value? Are you going to go to Kelowna or Guelph? Are you going to do big city, small town? Um what would you do? What's the best value? What's the smartest thing to do from your vantage point? Well, I'm a, I have a Toronto bias. I'll just, you know, I'm a <laughs> Toronto guy. So I would probably look at buying something. I, I might do a hybrid solution. You know, I would consider a property in Toronto uh, that is, uh, that is, you know, fits what I need here. And then maybe look for a vacation property when those prices drop a bit. Because I think right now everybody wants a vacation property. But vacation domestically or in a foreign locale? No, I'd probably stay in Canada. You know, right now, cottages, we know they've gone through the roof as well, right? 
but I think cottages will will cool down. I mean, why does everybody want a cottage? Because you can't leave the country. <laughs> a lot of magic to that, right? Yeah. And these trends like Halifax, are they for real or are they, are they just the end thing? Like everybody loved Vancouver and all the Asian money came in and bought everything up. And, you know, we seem to go through those things. Are you seeing any, like, is the Halifax thing for real? Do you think um, Calgary still is a good bet? Like, what do you think about those places? We'll take you out of the equation. Well, I look at Calgary and, you know, God, if you go online, if you were Toronto and you go online and you look, or from Vancouver, and you look at what you can get in Calgary, like 20 kilometers plus just outside the city limits. Like, there are some unbelievable, like we're talking acres of lands with yeah. 6,000 square foot homes. You could have a horse maybe. I mean, it's like. <laughs> in your living room, yeah. <laughs> and you could, and you know, I, I think with Calgary, there's got to be a point where Calgary becomes so of affordable because it's a big city right yeah. and you get to live there and it's credit yeah a fraction of the price you get your employer gets to house you in a gleaming downtown office some of these offices have been redone so they have basketball courts on on certain floors <laughs> like they have every amenity in some of these calgary buildings because there's so much space there so i i don't know i i as soon as somebody tells me that something's you know, it's finished. I always think, oh, okay, the media is always behind that Calgary is going to come back. I, I think Calgary is going to come back. I, I don't know. I, I don't know when, but I, I kind of believe in Calgary. Halifax, you know, Halifax, I think will be, uh, I can see that being a niche market for a long time. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful spot. spot. Yeah. But if you got to be in the, you know, and, and even work from home, you're going to have to be in the office probably once, at least once a month, but I would think maybe even once a week. You're not going to commute from Halifax to Toronto once a, right. once a week, right. are you, on a regular basis? I mean, you could be that, committed that. would to that. presuppose that the airlines survive as well. Yeah, yeah. So well, we'll right. assume that they survive. But I, <laughs> I don't, I, I just don't think people are going to do that. I, so I, you know, I think Halifax will continue to be a strong city and it probably will get some nice bounce from this pandemic that'll stick for a long time. But I don't see it replacing Toronto. I don't think, I think the suburban story will probably continue like the Guelphs, yeah. the, the Londons, the Kingstons, I think. The Colonies. That's, yeah, that's doable. Yeah. So you can drive into, if you yeah. can have a big place in Kingston, drive in once a week for two hours. You've got the downtown condo that you were talking about earlier that yeah. maybe you own. It's 400 square feet. It's like a hotel room you own. Makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're going to check in in about, I don't know, 10 months. Let's just assume that we're going to get through this and the vaccines are going to work and the variants are going to be kept at bay and uh, and see what happens next in terms of this whole market and how right or wrong we might have been today. Gary Marr, the, the real Gary Marr, as he said. <laughs> From CoStar News. So that's kind of an industry publication, is it? Yes. Well, CoStar is like the world's largest data provider. But what we're doing yeah. is very exciting for real for journalism is we've we're creating almost a Bloomberg of, of real estate. News. Okay. We've hired about 60 journalists. We've got people in markets like London, New York, Atlanta, myself in Toronto. We're looking for a Montreal reporter, if you know anybody. <laughs> it's just, we're just, you know, we, we're a big company and we think 
there's news to be told in the, in the real estate sector that people aren't getting elsewhere. Yeah, no, for sure. Absolutely. All right. Paul, do you have anything to say about how proud you are of yourself that you found the wrong Gary Mar that turned out to be the right Gary Mar? <laughs> oh, I have two things to say. We need to do we need to do a panel with both Garys on Garys, yeah. on Calgary's economy. I think just to hey, confuse our listeners a little bit more. Yeah. I'd like to meet him. I want to meet him my whole career. We're gonna do this. This is my this is my responsibility now to connect you two. <laughs> Uh, and then my my one last observation from this episode is that we need more homes with elevators. So that's yes. what I'm gonna I'm gonna start looking for an elevator in my own house. So well, that way, you know what, you can keep Grandma at home and put her upstairs, right? Exactly. Place exactly. Where you know those of us with bad knees can. I get wish I had an elevator, and I you know yeah. the last move out would be in the box, right? Yeah, that's <laughs> absolutely true. Okay, that's great, Gary. We'll talk soon again. Thanks so much. Okay, thanks. That's great. Gary Marr from CoStar News. So that is this edition of uh, No Nonsense. And Paul, you've you've redeemed yourself because this was a really good conversation. It was a happy accident. (laughs) It was a happy accident. All right. We'll see you soon. Thanks to Paul Boone, our producer on this. And thanks to Gary Marr.